Welcome to Grace to All. I'm your host, Paul Gray. You've probably used the word grace, sang Amazing Grace, or said grace at a meal. But did you know that God's grace is way better than we can even imagine, and that you and all people already have an abundant supply of God's unlimited amazing grace? Today, we're going to hear the truth about God's amazing grace to all people. So, sit back, relax, and prepare to be inspired and awakened to the amazing treasures that you already possess. This is truth that you can handle. Welcome again, everybody, to another edition of Grace to All with Paul Gray. And just the time that Malcolm and Cheryl and I have been talking between this and the last recording, I wish you guys could uh, have been here for this. I get paid by the word I joke about, but I don't have words to describe it. So uh, <laughs> I, I'm going to jump right in. And again, I'm with Malcolm and Cheryl Smith. And without going through an introduction, because I know many of you have already been blessed for years, some of you maybe for 70 years with Malcolm's teaching, and people have been blessed by Cheryl in different ways and in different places. And I'd like to pick up with what we were talking about in between, Cheryl, with your Prison ministry, uh, you call it Mannequin Ministries, right? Mannequin Ministry. Tell us about that, and then don't let me forget, I'd like you to read your poem, The Mannequin. Yeah, when I came to Christ on March 17th of 1983, like I said, I was in a crusade, and he was preaching on Tamar, and I was Tamar. And I'd been through so many hard times myself. And never really was affirmed as a child with my father, wasn't a very happy man. <laughs> but I became a model and modeled beautiful clothes and did ramp modeling, the kind that you get on a pedestal and you have to freeze. I did those kind of things. Right after I came to Christ, I wrote The Mannequin, and it talks about my testimony. She lived a hard life, being bruised in place to place, wearing the filth of a cruel world, abused and broken, a disgrace. Her heart was as stone, hardened with sin, never feeling loved, cold and lonely life had been. Lovers, she had many, a beautiful trophy she was used to be, a mannequin on the outside, inside a soul searching to be freed. She had suffered from a broken life, whether it be her fault or not. The enemy tried to steal and kill, yet it was the cross of love she saw. She gathered her past, broken with sin, and then she offered it up to him, a broken vessel, marred and stained, crying, heal me, make me beautiful again. He took the broken pieces and he bound them in his love. He cleansed me with his spirit as gentle as a dove. He stirred her with his fire, his Holy Spirit might, teaching her of his healing love to be a vessel of his light. So from the rags of the world, unforgiveness and strife, to the riches of Jesus, abounding love, eternal life, now no longer bound in sin, is just the beautiful mannequin, a gentle, soft woman she's come to be because of the cross of Calvary. Wow. Yeah. And I always sign it written through the heart and hand of Cheryl Young by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's written all these poems 
and taking the broken things in my life. And as I was sharing the other night, there was a time when I stood in the prison to preach the first time. And all that I know that bruised and hurt me and the lies that I believed, that I stood there and I drew the line and I said, never again. I told the enemy, never again will I bow to your lies. And the women listened because they knew I had been in those places. I'd been beaten, almost died. I'd gone through molestation and rape. And I knew what it felt like to swallow that kind of believing the things about yourself, like it was your fault. So. Yeah, I loved ministry in in the jail. I started volunteering and I traveled with Bill Glass for a while. And then I became a part of Mike Barber ministry and was on his staff for a while. And he did support me at Harris County Jail, where I became the staff chaplain for 10 years from 1992 on April Fool's Day. I started in full-time ministry. Hallelujah. (laughs) And that lasted till July of 2002. But since COVID, I haven't been back in, but I still have my volunteer. You know, I have programs that are scheduled for this year, but I'm just um, grateful because when I found Jesus, And he showed me his love. And I was able to forgive myself, which is the trouble with a lot of women, you know, that are in prison. It's hard enough to forgive the people that hurt them, but um, they didn't get there by themselves. And when they're able to forgive themselves and accept the love of God, I tell you what, when I accepted the love of the Lord that night on March 17th, it was like a mighty flood. And when I went into the prisons, I have no judgment in me because God forgave me and his love and his forgiveness and his goodness he poured out on me. I've just been able to convey to the women their value that, you know, it's not over. It's not over. Gosh, what a wonderful ministry, Cheryl. And it obviously there are segments of society that are broken, I'll say maybe more broken, although that's not really correct, but have a a harder time of seeing God's love, I think, because they have a deeper sense of the lie about who they are. But I think that permeates everybody to some extent, not knowing who we are. And we talked earlier about Paul Young's POS theology, piece of scubula, which is the Bible word for animal dung. But we all have that to some extent. And I come from, well, my background doesn't make any difference. Everybody has a different background. But seeing the light go on in people's eyes when they start to get, you mean I'm really not who I thought I was? You mean I'm really not who I thought God thought I was? Oh, man, there's nothing better than that. And you both, I know, have seen that in spades over the years. But that makes it all worthwhile, doesn't it, to help people? Oh, yeah. And the Lord, in fact, would give me words to speak. And one of those words is very powerful to me. He said, if you can conceive the height 
the width and the depth of my love for you. You will be pregnant with my glory and my mantle of authority will rest upon you. That was a powerful word. And if you take that word and say, instead of glory, you say goodness, you'll be pregnant with my goodness. <laughs> yeah. And my mantle of authority will rest upon you. Well, that will blow most people out of the water. They just can't under, you know, they feel the love, the river of God that is coming out. It's life to them. I remember praying for a girl down in the hospital at the jail, and I didn't know she was down there. I mean, we had 2,700 women, but I just kind of felt an unction like I needed to go down to the infirmary. So I went down there and just Holy Spirit had just told me to go downstairs. And there she was. She was 60 pounds. And wasn't expected to live that weekend. I was on call. And that means that I had to come deliver death messages. You know, or if somebody died, I had to come down and tell the family and different things. But anyway, God had brought me down there. And I saw her and my heart just went out to her. And not every time when I prayed, but this time when I prayed, this girl had AIDS. And they said she would die that weekend. But. When I laid my hand on her, I felt the power of God come down through my arm into her body. And she didn't die that weekend. In fact, she lived several years. Her blood count went way up. She gained over 100 pounds. And so, you see, I mean, the love of God can heal. It's amazing. Yeah, every time Jesus healed, it's prefaced somewhere in the context that he was moved with compassion. When I was part of the charismatic movement, and prior to that, I was with the Assemblies of God, and the key words that everybody was looking for was, what's the power? How do you get the power? The power. And... The fact is, Jesus' power was he was moved with compassion. All of his healing, all of his, it says, he saw them, he saw the sick, and he was moved with compassion and healed them. And about a chapter later, it says, he saw the people, and they'd been beaten by religion, and he taught them. But it says in the case, he saw them, then he was moved with compassion, and he taught them. So you can't, there's no power that's going to enable you to speak or to heal. Because that power, which often feels like power, but really it's the compassion, it's the love of God, it's the goodness of God. It says of Jesus in Acts 10, summing his life in a sentence, Peter said he went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. And that's it. God is the God who does good and he does love. And I've heard you say so many times that in John chapter 10, the who comes to steal and kill and destroy yeah. is religion. <laughs> uh, chapter 9 and the first part of chapter 10, and uh, he comes to, you know, somebody said to me one time, they'd read uh, one of my books, and they said, well, you're just making God out to be better than God is. God, You know, God isn't that good. And uh, they said, based on what you say, 
what did Jesus have to come and save us from? And of course, my thought was, obviously, you don't have a clue. But I think in huge part, he came to save us from religion, which told us that God didn't like us and that he was mad at us and that we were no good and uh, that, you know, he was going to torture us forever. He wanted to save us and still wants to save us from having that mindset. That, to me, is missing the mark, uh, harmartia, and the biggest way of all, it's having a wrong impression of who God is. But we get to tell him the truth. That is the darkness. Mm-hmm. And it speaks so often of the darkness. And I believe that darkness is that we have invented a God of our own imagination and, and is a God that we invented to fit how we see ourselves. Yeah, it's our opinion. So, yeah, it, it's our opinion of what God should be like seeing as the way I am. And so well, I feel guilt, I feel shame. And so I invent a God that hates sin and therefore is going to punish me. And then I feel good. I've got a God that agrees with me. And his pure imagination, he doesn't exist. Jesus said in Matthew 11, these words are incredible. Jesus said, no one knows the Father except the Son himself. Well, no one. So that's an awe that embraces everything. That means that even the Old Testament greats, they didn't know the Father. Well, they knew flashes of light. They they knew, uh, as when I stood on the platform and Cheryl was down there weeping, you know, I know her, that they'd seen God. They'd walked on the side and they'd overheard who he is. But they didn't, Jesus said they didn't know him. It takes God himself to come from God and tell me who God is. Only God knows who he is. And who he is, is so incredible, the human brain would never have invented that by ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, It's fascinating to me that when Jesus would hang out with people, it was always with the worst of sinners, which gave him the glorious title of being the friend of tax collectors and sinners. But the people that he spoke really strong words to, they were the religious leaders. And they were of the religion of that day. These were the good guys. The the Sadducees were the liberals. They didn't believe very much at all. They controlled the temple. It was the business. But the Pharisee would be equivalent. And please don't get me wrong here. But the Pharisee would be today's evangelical or charismatic. They believed a lot more than the Sadducees did. And Jesus reserved his strongest statements for those people. You would have thought he would have sat down with with the tax collectors, which were a kind of mafia, and really let them have it. But instead, he ate with them, which in those days was a bonding, it was a covenant. Received them. Yes, that's good. That word receive in the Greek language means you're waiting for a person to come, that you can hardly wait till they get here. And you're going to the window to see if they're coming. And you're checking your text to see you're waiting. And they fling your arms around them. Someone you really want to receive them. And that's the word the Greek is there. And so Jesus didn't just sit down with them. He was excited. He was couldn't wait to see them, hug them. And it was the religious people that got 
Well, I mean, can it get any worse? Jesus called them a snake pit. Uh, <laughs> a heart full of snakes. Mm. And, and then he says, you look fantastic on the outside, but inside you're like a pan that, that you haven't cleaned out the dinner from last week. And it's moldy. And I mean, that's strong language. He said, you're, you're like a new tomb. He said, you're all whitewashed on the inside, but if you look inside, you're full of dead men's bones. That's religion. Yeah. Religion is having all the facts with no experience. The truth is God is love, and he wills me to know I'm loved and for me to be a lover. Love one another as I have loved you. Mm -hmm. So first of all, he loves me. That fills my whole being, and I become a divine lover. That's the truth. Religion is more concerned that it's right, and they will argue for a lifetime over doctrine and theology. There's no love there whatsoever. And I was speaking in one place, and I used the term that God woos us. I said, he's the lover, and he woos us to himself. And there was one there. He I might as well say it. He was a Calvinist. And from sitting in the audience, he just, on his big mocking laugh, he said, Malcolm, you're stupid that God woos us. And pretty obvious he didn't get the point. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. And he would be the first one to say, I'm right. I got my doctrine right. I don't associate with the wrong. I'm right. Whereas God is love. And um, to begin with, he doesn't seem to bother about right and wrong. He just loves you mm -hmm. where you're at. And it's when your eyes are open that you can see the darkness, which you couldn't even see the darkness before. Right. Because you're in it. And so the woman taken in adultery, neither do I condemn you. Has anybody ever preached on that? No, <laughs> no I don't neither, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I felt more condemned after coming to Christ in church by people that, you know, were looking at me on the outside, you know. I'd rather go spend time in prison with the women. <laughs> I felt more love there. Yeah, all of those things that you've said bring up so many different memories. And I don't know about you guys. I have to, uh, well, I use the term struggle. I don't know if that's the right word or not. But the good news is so good. And God's love and grace and goodness, mercy and acceptance, lightning is so good. And I know that religion has been the institution that has kept us from knowing that. I also know people in religious systems who are in the dark have done that. What I struggle with is it can be so easy for me to spend a lot of time focusing on how bad religion is and how I was hurt there and how other people have been hurt there rather than to focus on the goodness and love of God. And I think, especially Malcolm, I see you having a really good balance of that. You mention it, you know, you don't shy away from it or pull any punches, but you always lead back to and focus and spend much more time on the goodness of God than the badness of religion. And I'm tempted to uh, do just the opposite sometimes. No, I'm tempted the same way because when I'm speaking and I'm looking out there on people's faces, I know that they have been beaten, tortured by religion. And I want to point out to them, I know what's going on. That's not what I'm talking about. So it's a constant temptation to do that. But, and I know obviously, if you listen to me at all, you know that I do speak to that. 
But I remember speaking to an FBI agent who was in the fraud division, and he said, we, we don't study fake notes. We never look at counterfeit money. We just study the real thing. And then the counterfeit is shown up immediately. That's right. And it's the truth. You know the real gospel, and you can smell religion a mile off. The bottom line is, most churches don't believe in the finished work of Christ. It's always, if you do that, you know, it's... Well, he did his part. Now we got to do our part. That's as hurtful to me. And the Father, that has to hurt the Father. I mean, he gave his only begotten son. And it's just hard to believe that people grovel and don't believe who they are in Christ. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's hard to understand. And the only time that Jesus pretty well lost it, you could say, was when he looked at Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, of course, being that's the religious center, more than we can comprehend today. And when he looked at it, and the Greek language there says, with great convulsive sobs, he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you, but you would not. And again, I said, that wasn't over the people we would have thought. You know, it should have been those public social sinners. And he, that's, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that he endorsed what they did. And he always said, go and sin no more. But on the other hand, he was on their side against religion. Religion threw them out. Religion crushed them. Religion beat them, threatened them with a monster God. And Jesus always stood beside them, not endorsing them, but loving them and being the power to come out of it. But no, I face that all the time. I'm not an angry person. It's not in me by the grace of God. But when I come up against religion, I'm hardly responsible for what I say. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you'll see this passage the same way. And obviously we don't have to. When I think of Ephesians 4, starting verse 29 or so, I I like the old King James. It says, uh, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what's useful for edifying, building people up, that it may minister grace to all those who hear. It's not an exact quote. And of course, grace is contrasted with law. And so I've come to see that unwholesome talk, obviously words have a multitude of meanings, but I think what he's talking about there, unwholesome talk, is saying that God is not good. And God is all of these different things that religion has taught us, which of course comes from the law, whether the written law or things, laws that we come up with in a given church or whatever. And he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. I think, at least to me, at least in one sense, what grieves the Holy Spirit, and when Jesus lost it, you said there, it's unwholesome conversation that leads to grieving the Holy Spirit, at least to me, in a huge part, is conversation that tars the face of the Father and says he's anything but total goodness and total love and total acceptance and total inclusion. Any conversation that has to do with that, I believe, grieves the Holy Spirit. I'm not expecting you to endorse my understanding there. I just want to throw it out. That's what I get from that passage. Yeah, and I think that fits in with what we've just been saying, that the anger of Jesus, there's no other word for it, was with those that with the authority of religion tarred the face of God and made him to be other than he is. In fact, in John 17, 
Jesus, it's in the Greek prayer of Jesus, but he's really telling the Father that I've accomplished the work you gave me to do. John 17 is at the end. He'll go out from there to be arrested and the whole thing goes. But John 17 is the finale. He says, okay, Father, the hour has come. I'm going out there, but I just want to check in and celebrate with you that we did it. We did what I came to do. And then he goes on to say what he came to do. Now, this is the point. He said, I have glorified your name. Mm -hmm. He then said, and I have explained, I've told these men your name, and they have come to trust your name. And he goes on like that. And right at the end, he says, I have expounded, glorified your name, and I will now do it again. It's as if he has a passion. If it is one thing I'm coming to do is to tell the darkened world who you really are. Mm -hmm. I'm telling your name. And of course, name in the Bible means the essence of your being. And so I've come to expound you. I've come to tell them who you are. He said, I've done it. I've done it. But then, of course, at the end where he says, I have, but I will. Meaning we haven't seen the end yet. Yeah. And of course, he goes into his sufferings with inside that darkness, coming inside where we are. What's he going to do? He's going to tell us in the darkness, in his sufferings and cross and death, he's going to tell us who the Father really is. It's all about that. Who is the Father? And in today's world, the church today is a fatherless society. In almost any denomination you go, the Father is unknown. God the Father is unknown. And if he is known, he's in, as I say, his face has been tarred and blackened by the wickedness of religion that he's portrayed. And if you go into other churches, like many of my charismatic friends, they don't understand the Father. They don't mention the Father, but they sure like the Holy Spirit. And if you go into the evangelical world, again, they don't know the Father nor the Holy Spirit, but they do like Jesus. So they got the entire Trinity is so screwed up. They don't know the Trinity. They don't know the Father. And they don't know that if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Mm. And the Holy Spirit is the teacher and the exegete of Jesus who is, and brings us to the Father. But the whole thing is, he's, he said, I'm telling them who you are. I'm telling your name. And, and I think that's really what we're talking about. Indeed. And that's his passion. He's not, yeah. he's not judge. He's Father. Yeah, and we tell his name. We tell tell the darkness his name. And as you mentioned, every day that we get up, we go deeper and deeper and learn more and more about how good his love and goodness is. But when I really started to grasp this, in large part due to your teaching, we started a church 31 years ago. And when I <laughs> when I started really seeing the era of my ways, one of the first things we did, we got a 55-gallon barrel drum. And we put some flammable stuff in the bottom. And I took all my sermons. I, you know, I'd kept them all. I typed them. I took all of them. We had a party and we burned all of them. But not long after that, I kept the bylaws of the church because that's what makes us legal in the eyes of the government. But I took our statement of faith and I burned that. And then I took all of our doctrines and I burned them. And then I dissolved all the committees. <laughs> I said, we're going to talk about the love of the Father, and we're going to talk about grace in action. We're going to talk about Papa's goodness, 
We're not going to have any doctrines. We're not going to, I mean, we can explain that. We can go deeper in that. We can experience that. But what else is there that we, what could possibly compare with that, that we need to spend time and teaching? At least that's where I'm coming from. Yeah, but that is the whole message. The love of God is not merely a preface to the gospel. It is the gospel. And the gospel isn't merely something you share with the unconverted, or whatever you want to call them. The gospel is my entire life. And we've got all the rules and bylaws and everything. But Jesus said one thing, love one another as I have loved you. That's it. And as I pointed out, as I have loved you. So the first thing with that statement is I love you. Now, when you've got that, now love one another as I have loved you. You forgive one another as you've been forgiven. Mm-hmm. It starts with him, starts with love. But that is not simply, well, you know, get this out of the way, this is God. No, that's the gospel. And the gospel isn't something that you do in a big crusade and get you know, everybody saved. The gospel is the entirety of my life. I'm still living the gospel. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, is the good news. The merry good news that makes a man fairly leap with joy. Yes. I have a friend who said once, or more than once. Yeah. Well, let's see. Go back to the 16th century when the Bible was translated into English. Of course, the King James Version is really a lot of 16th century English. And that's where we come across the word gospel. And in 1600 or thereabouts, the word meant the good, glad, merry news that makes a man fairly leap for joy. Wow. That's the yeah. straight out of the dictionary. And it was not a religious word. It yeah. was a, a word that was used by, you know, the peasants of England to yeah. describe a great happening. I've wanted to ask you for a long time, Malcolm, what, what was it like when the King James first came out? I don't remember. I don't <laughs> it was <laughs> such a big deal um, because the very fact is called King James and I don't know whether your audience or anybody knows or cares about the history of England but well, at that time England was in turmoil and Scotland was their enemy and the whole thing is going apart. So the big thing is, how can we unite everything and bring peace? And England was without a king. And so they did the unthinkable. They went to Scotland, which was their worst enemy. And James VI of Scotland was asked to become James I of England. Really? The two con- Yeah, unite the two countries that. together. Wow. Well, how do you do that when Scotland is no friend of England at that time? Mm. And so they hit on this glorious plan. King James would give to the English people a Bible in their own language, and they would all vote for him. Yes! That was the biggest thing he could think of in that day. The people wanted it in English. And so it became the King James Bible. Wow. His biggest political tool to bring England and Scotland and everybody together. Didn't know that. Wow. And so. Well, that explains it. What was it like? It was a very different one. 
Can you imagine running for president and, and the biggest platform is, I'll give you a new Bible? <laughs> no, um, that would be kind of impressive right now. Yeah, come a long way, though. <laughs> well, yeah, my gosh. Well, this has been just so wonderful for me, and I just know that all of our friends across the Internet who have listened have been blessed as much. I, I don't think they can be blessed any more than I have because I don't have words, but uh, we've all been blessed so much by this, and I Thank you so much for being with us. And if you would, please tell folks again how they can connect with you and where they can hear more of what they've just been hearing. Well, the most important is YouTube. My Sunday morning message here in Bandera, it goes out. We've got a big, big audience that join us every Sunday morning on Zoom. Several thousand. From all over the world. Yeah. 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 It's a strange feeling. I'm sitting there talking to people, and we've got some who are in Hawaii. In Hawaii, they have to get up at 4.30 in the morning Mm -hmm. to be on Zoom, which is to us, 11 o'clock. Yeah. And um, on the other end, we've got people in Europe. There's one particular one from Scotland. Well, for them... They're coming on at 5 o'clock on Sunday afternoon to be with us at 11 o'clock. And sometimes we get people from Africa, Egypt, coming on that Zoom. We've got one who comes in from Venezuela, right out of the middle of that most terrible dictatorship. And the dictator down there has shut down all man any communication with the outside world. Oh, right. This man is able to get in, I don't know, but he's there every Sunday morning on Zoom. So that's YouTube Malcolm Smith webinars. Yeah. And so that message on Sunday morning is put up on YouTube on Monday night or Monday evening. And so you go to YouTube and what you're looking for is Malcolm Smith webinars. Don't just put my name in there. It's Malcolm Smith webinars, and that will take you. We've got over 400 hours of teaching there, and it, you would number them all. You say everything's there. And don't go to the beginning. Start at the end. Start with my latest, and you can work backwards. But And then information about our Bible school and our December retreat, which is right now, that's the most important thing coming up. First weekend of December here in San Antonio. You don't want to miss it. No. It's my (laughs) 70th year in the ministry, and uh, Cheryl's in charge of that bit of it. Uh, I'm teaching Friday afternoon through Saturday afternoon on living now in the rest of God. But then Cheryl takes over Saturday night is the celebration of 70 years in the ministry. <laughs> so Wonderful. Yeah. And then, Cheryl, yours is Mannequin Ministries. Is that .org.com? You have a website? Well, right now, my website is down, but you can reach me at P.O. Box 3633, Bandera, Texas, 78003. But I'm getting back online again. But during COVID, you know, I just kind of shut everything down. But yeah, I'm writing my story along mm-hmm. with stories from prison, the different ones that have been changed. And so be looking for that sometime in the near future. Wonderful. I want to thank you again publicly for being with us. Thank you all for being here for another wonderful 
two editions of Grace to All with Malcolm and Cheryl Smith. So thanks, everybody. Love you all. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Grace to All. For more about us, how we can serve you, and our special guest, please visit www.gracewithpaulgray.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode and to join our Facebook group, Grace to All, where you'll be inspired and awakened to more truth that you can handle.